are in the midst of a series where we've been looking at the uh, seven miracles that John records in his gospel that Jesus performed. And we've been tying those to different aspects of the space program, most specifically in that goal to send humans to the moon. And eventually they want to send some of us back to the moon. And when the goal was announced that they wanted to do this, it was the early 60s, they first shared the dream to send human beings to another heavenly body. It was something that many thought was such a ludicrous idea. It didn't make any sense that in less than a decade, they would launch a rocket that was over 300 feet tall, made of materials that they had not yet invented, shooting a few human beings with all of that thrust 240,000 miles to the moon in a little box or a little capsule capable of withstanding pressures and temperatures that had never been experienced before in humankind, in human history. And then the goal of we can't just get them there, we need to keep them alive and somehow bring them home again. And you, can, you remember that perhaps there's a lot of bumps along the way. Uh, they've even made a couple of regular movies about all of the trials and tribulations of that. But this was going to require a lot of work and creativity and innovation. And naturally there were a lot of questions. And the biggest question was, how? How is this possible that they can do this? I mean, they didn't even have smartphones. In fact, the computers that powered those capsules are less powerful than what you, the phone that you have in your hand today. I mean, that just should blow our mind. And they did some of the math on backs of napkins to try to estimate with precision if that was even possible. Even as the plan was rolled out, it was viewed by many to be impossible. A few people, however, could see what it would take. And in fact, NASA identified no less than 10,000 separate tasks that they would have to become successful at if it stood a chance of success. So what did they do? They ran test after test after test. This is one of the simulations. I know it's a little hard to see. But they built basically a simulation of the lander and all the things that the astronauts would have to be in. And they kept running simulation, test after test. And in these tests, they would subject them to failures and all sorts of things that they couldn't always anticipate to see what would happen. Why do you think they did that? So that when the real thing happened, they would actually be able to perform under pressure. They would know what to do because they had faced so many tests. This whole process was both, seemed both foolish and grand. It was naive and pioneering. It was that journey into the unknown and the seemingly impossible. There's a natural tension that exists upon all great achievements or goals that seem way out there. The what we can see versus what we cannot. And for every reason why, there are thousands of reasons why not. The foundation of this particular goal, though, was the boldness to believe that it was possible 
in the first place. It's with that we're going to turn to the Word. So if you have a Bible with you, or you have one on your phone, you can pull up John 6, John chapter 6. If you are a note-taker person, you can look at the back of your bulletin as well to help guide your thoughts as well. The title of the message is, This is Only a Test. So don't worry if you are not a good test taker. The sign or miracle that we're going to focus on today is one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible, and it's so important. We know that out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John often records other things. He doesn't always follow the other three. He records other stories. But this particular story is so important that it actually shows up in all four of those stories. And we've said before that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are like four different camera angles or perspectives on the same types of events. Outside of the resurrection of Jesus, this is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. So let's read it this morning, John 6, 1 through 14. I'm going to kind of read it slowly so that we let it sink in. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. So much money that you would buy out Costco Bakery. I just added that part. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. And then he said, but how far will they go among so many? This is where we see Jesus go to work. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so it must not have been California. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And I'm going to stop there. I have a picture, and 
if you're old enough, you might be able to remember, or if you are a TV watcher, who remembers what it was uh, like when something like this would appear on the TV? You might not remember something like this, but you surely remember that weird sound or that annoying screech. And it was, it was like designed to be the most annoying sound in the world. And that would come on and it, would, it was meant to sort of draw your attention. And then there would be that stern voice that would say, this is a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. If this had been a real emergency, instructions would follow or yada, yada, yada. Something like that. It was someone with a good radio voice probably because they also did the radio as well. And that sound was meant to cause our eyes to lift up off of whatever else we were doing. We didn't have smartphones back then, so we would, you know, maybe we were reading a magazine. I, don't, I have no idea. But it would alert us that something was about to happen. And most of the time, in fact, every time that I saw this, nothing happened. It was always, this is only a test. Thank goodness. But this is back in the 1980s when it was more frequent and we were worried about things. It was a test so that we would be ready to act or at least have some idea of what to do in the real moment. That word test is actually used here in the story of this sign, this miracle today. A test that Jesus gives to his disciples. And when Jesus initiates a test, and he does this at different points, it is usually meant as a positive thing. It's not a test that's supposed to trip you up or make you feel horrible about yourself or get a zero. It's a test that's supposed to be a teaching moment for us to help us discover or reveal what is within, what is possible when we begin to trust him in faith. Now, when people tried to flip this on Jesus and tried to, do, to test him, it usually was the opposite they weren't trying to build him up. They were trying to tear him down. Those moments were attempts to entrap or confuse in order to discredit him. All those tests never worked out. Because Jesus is the one who initiates the test in this story, I think there's much that we can learn about what we are capable when we face the tests of this life. Because believe it or not, you will all be tested. Many of you know this, maybe far too much than you'd prefer. In those times that test your faith, it's been said before that a faith that can't be tested is a faith that can't be trusted. So a faith test is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it's something that we have to learn to if not welcome, certainly accept. God wants you to be able to trust your faith. He wants you to know that he can be counted on just like the faith that you have received can be counted on, especially in those times of struggle when you will need that faith to see you through. God will test each of us, but 
It's not those tests that we see the Pharisees always doing. You know, they were trying to trip Jesus up all the time, asking him all those nitpicky details. You know, like the tests you get in school, where it'll be those multiple choice questions. You're like, where did the, where did the teacher pull that one out of? I have no idea what lecture that was from. And then you just guess. No, Jesus' tests are meant to strengthen our spiritual backbone and develop our resilience in the face of opposition. They actually work to refine us and help us to see as he sees, to believe as he believes, to act as he acts. The test that Jesus gives us, is this a test? That scared me. I thought this was an actual emergency broadcast system for a second there. I thought we were going to go, you know, okay. No, I didn't play. The tests that Jesus gives us are ones that we need to learn how to welcome. You see, you're being tested right now. You're being refined and reformed, and some of you might be sweating right now thinking, is this on the test? just like you did in school. That's why I made sure to say this is only a test. When it comes to the ways that God will eventually test you, and he doesn't test everyone in the same way, he's doing so because he actually trusts you enough to test you. If he didn't trust us, we wouldn't be tested, because he knew he would know that we couldn't handle it. I've not always thought of God's test like that as something to actually welcome. But God sees something in us, or else he would have never chosen us in the first place. So as we look at this story, this test, we actually can see a progression of what is seen by the disciples. I want to just point out three things. First, the disciples seem to be in an unsolvable situation something that they have no idea what to do with. They're in the midst of trying to have some rest and renewal, and these crowds just keep on coming, and they don't know what to do. It's a problem that at first glance seems impossible. Can anyone relate? Do you have those things in your life that at first glance, or maybe at second or third glance, just feel overwhelming? and unsolvable, and downright impossible. According to Matthew's version, we know that in addition to those 5,000 men, there were also women and children, so there were probably as many as fifteen to 20,000 people there on this day, all coming after Jesus. Why were they coming after Jesus? Well, by this point, they had seen a whole bunch of stuff that Jesus was able to do, and it was pretty amazing. People were getting healed. People were doing things that they had never done. Last week we talked about the man who was healed at the pool. A guy who, after decades, suddenly was told to get up and walk. And he could. Word was spreading and more and more people were following him around. And at this particular moment, this is not a random time, but it's a purposeful time that God chooses to act at this moment. All sorts of people were traveling around for one of the big Jewish festivals, the Passover. So there are lots of pilgrims on the road at this time. 
And you can imagine that as Jesus and his disciples are trying to withdraw up a hillside just to get a little break, that someone, maybe they were the paparazzi or whatever, suddenly say, there he is over there, and people go racing towards him. They want to see Jesus. They want to participate in what he is doing. And instead of being annoyed at the interruption, Jesus does something that I think is hard for us to do. He lifts his eyes, and instead of an interruption or getting annoyed, he sees with a heart of compassion. Often the greatest things that God will do in our life are those moments that we initially think, why is this happening right now? I got so many other things to do. And that's precisely the moment where God says, watch out. I want to use you. Are you willing to be used right now? He knows the crowd is hungry and tired, so what does he do? He actually turns to one of his disciples. He turns to Philip. Now, the interesting thing about Philip, Philip is a local. It would be like if Jesus showed up and said, yeah, I've got 20,000 people out in the parking lot. Do you know where the best grocery store is so we can feed them all? Who wants to go to Costco right now? Who wants to head off to Safeway? Who wants to go to Winco? Where are we going to feed all these people? Jesus is asking the local guy, Andrew, or Philip, what is going on? Philip is like, are you kidding me? It would take so much time, so much money, so many resources. This is where Philip is from, a little town called Bethsaida, right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. This is a map from a couple weeks ago. We know that over here, this is where Jesus did his first miracle, turning water into wine. And it was such a receptive place that Jesus actually goes back there later. And remember that man who he ran 22 miles because his son was was sick and near death? And he asked Jesus to come back with him, and Jesus says, no, I don't need to go back with you. Your son is healed. And at that moment, he was healed. And that man had to run back 22 more miles and see, yeah, it's actually true. Jesus did this. And then it says he believed and his whole household came to believe in Jesus. So all this is happening here. And now they're finally over here. They've gotten in a boat. They've gone over to this other area called Bethsaida. They want to get away from it for a while. And the crowds just keep coming and following. And Philip, I don't know, maybe he's comfortable being back in his hometown but he just cannot see how this is possible. To him, feeding all these people is an unsolvable problem. It's a situation that was out of their power. And each of us have situations that we think are unsolvable in our lives, things that are beyond hope, or certainly beyond our ability to see a way out. And the truth is that because we can't always see as God sees, we actually are in danger of missing the amazing work that he wants to do in that moment. The amazing work that God is about to accomplish. Why would Jesus ask this question that is downright impossible? Oh, just go out and buy enough bread for 20,000 people. Well, we know something that Philip didn't know at that moment because the word says so. Jesus said it to test him. This is only a test. 
Jesus didn't need him to run to the grocery store to do anything because he already knew what he was going to do, the word says. Whenever we see God act in unusual ways, in ways that don't make sense to us, that's usually a clue to us to pay attention because something is about to happen. He's about to do something amazing. Those are those moments where instead of our natural inclination to just kind of like back away slowly, Jesus is encouraging us almost to lean in with like bated breath just to see what he's about to do. Because what God does next has the potential to open our eyes to see what is possible in the kingdom of God. To begin to believe the word of Jesus as you experience the power of his presence to move and to act in this world. So that's that first part. They see this unsolvable situation. And then that moves into the second part. The disciples actually see an unlikely solution. An unlikely solution. At this point, they have no idea what they're going to do. And Jesus is approached by another one of his disciples, Andrew. Andrew, by the way, is also from the area. He's a local, so maybe he had a little more knowledge. I have no idea. And he has this unlikely solution. He has discovered a small boy who basically walks up with their version of a lunchbox. He says, hey, I found this kid, and he's got a lunchbox. He's coming up with a Lunchable and a Capri Sun, and... This is Andrew's solution, or at least his lame attempt to say, I, this might help, I have no idea. And they see this kid's lunch, and it's a very meager lunch. It's a few, I didn't have any barley loaves, come on. <laughs> I have five popcorn seeds here, okay. It's a very meager lunch. If you pack this lunch for your child, shame, shame. (laughs) Never underestimate the power of packing a good lunch. We don't know what Jesus can do in that moment. Anyway, this kid shows up with this lunch. He didn't have to. He could have just hidden off in the corner and, you know, just eaten his lunch quietly. We can be glad it wasn't fruit roll-up day because the story probably would have turned out very differently for all of us. 20,000 hungry people and a kid with a lunchbox, that's the solution. You bring a kid with a gogurt and you're expecting everyone to be fed. Five barley loaves and two not even large, two small fish. Now the food of the poor was barley. That was the poorest bread you could get. Less than Wonder Bread. This was the poorest bread you could get. Although Wonder Bread was delicious growing up, to be perfectly honest. And somehow this boy came forward. And with this meager lunch, it's still impossible for the disciples to see a way forward. They don't understand how it's going to be possible to feed everyone. The math just doesn't add up. I mean, maybe if you just pass it and you just kind of like smell it as it goes by, or you take a little lick and then pass it on. This was pre-COVID, so we could do those sorts of things. Maybe that, everyone would get just enough of a little whiff or a taste. Maybe that it would be possible. 
But like Philip, unable to see the possibility, now Andrew wonders, how far can this actually stretch? There's just too many people. And this is the moment when Jesus prepares to show them the answer key to the test that they didn't even know that they were taking. Almost like, watch what I can do right now. I imagine Jesus saying, what is this? Here's what this is. You see a tiny meal that's not enough. I see a feast. Break out the Tupperware. There's going to be enough to go home with. Your math says 5 plus 2 equals too little. But it's really 5 plus 2 equals more than enough. Everything God needed for a miraculous moment was already there. But it took a willingness to bring it forward, to present it to Jesus. Friends, sometimes we want to offer the biggest, the best, the shiniest, the grandest. But often God wants us to see and experience what is possible with what feels far too small to make a difference. I actually think that God delights in taking our weaknesses, in using our uncertain abilities, our meager resources, our minor opportunities as an opportunity to transform the unsolvable and unlikely into the miraculous. Because then we know it is not us, it is definitely God at work. If we always used our best, we'd start to think, I'm pretty great. Look at what I can do. And we see that happen as well at different points in the Bible. This morning, that thing that's in your heart that you sense God leading you towards, that thing that you believe God wants you to do, you don't need a grocery store. You don't need Costco bakery to fill the order. Perhaps that's the very next test for you to give what you have, to offer who you are, to see God use it to accomplish what seems or feels impossible. And actually, in your own strength, is probably impossible. But with his strength, is perfectly possible. What a miracle that would be if we brought all of that to the feet of Jesus. So that's that second part, an unlikely solution. And that leads to the third part of what the disciples are able to see. They see an unbelievable sign. In his hands, Jesus held what didn't seem like enough. But what did he do? He prayed over it. And he gave thanks to God for what had been given. He gave thanks for what they had, not what they didn't have. And then what did he do? He gave it out. No rationing, no holding, no hoarding. They just passed it around, and everybody had all that they needed. And Mr. Ray, here, I'm going to give that to you. I want you to just start passing that around, if you would help me. Open that up. And no, it's not Jeff Bezos, is not Jesus telling you that. There was no scarcity. There was no holding back. Instead, there was only thankfulness, generosity, trusting in faith that it was more than enough. 
This was now a massive all-you-could-eat buffet. Obviously, we're pretending here this morning. A massive all-you-can-eat buffet, and each one ate as much as they wanted. There's a reason we did this one when the kids are not here right now. Maybe there, maybe there will be a little for them. I don't know. This is how it often works in the way of Christ. Christ takes what we offer. He gives thanks. He blesses it. He gives it away. And he provides the abundance. And then here's the kicker. You can choose to eat as much or as little as you want. See, God is not going to force you to eat. You can read as much or as little of the Bible as you want to. You can pray as much or as little as you want to. You can follow Jesus as closely or as diligently as you want to. And it's not going to make a difference. Jesus allows you to do all of that. But he's saying, are you going to develop this appetite for all that I have for you so that you learn to eat your fill? Because what I offer is more than enough. Not just merely enough. Not just barely enough. I can't remember exactly what the popcorn is called. I think it's nearly or barely. So it doesn't quite work. What is it? Okay. Jesus doesn't offer you just nearly enough. He offers you more than enough. More than what you actually want. Afterwards, Jesus had his disciples collect the leftovers. We're going to have you keep your leftovers. I think Jesus wanted his disciples to go around and be the ones to pick up all the the leftovers. He wanted them to see this unbelievable sign of what was possible when they believed in the power and presence of the living God. Jesus needed them to see his abundant provision. It was a test that helped them to see what is possible, to blow their minds, to make that word impossible almost leave their vocabulary. It was a test to strengthen their faith for those hard times and dark nights. And just as for that group of disciples then, so it is for us today. Jesus knows that your battle-tested faith is necessary for those hard times. The hard times that you've had before and the hard times which will certainly come, often when we least expect it, especially in those seemingly unsolvable situations of life. This morning, remember and be encouraged that in this process you are actually in training. That's part of God's test. He's training you. All followers of Christ are in training. And training is hard. Anyone who's ever tried to keep at something, when you're training, it's hard work. There are going to be bumps and hiccups and even setbacks, just like there were for the space program. People died so that others could walk on the moon. It doesn't always make sense to us. Jesus knows what he's going to do. He always knows what he's going to do. May we have the boldness to believe that he, what he can accomplish through us will be utterly amazing. All it takes is that step of faith. Friends, let's pray. God, I thank you for the story of this sign, this miracle, and that it was so important that it actually shows up four times.
We don't like your tests sometimes, certainly not the trials. But we thank you that your tests have the power to grow and shape us, to refine and strengthen us, that you're actually working, preparing us to join you in your work to transform and restore your good world. Thank you, O God, that you love us enough to test us. Lord, if I had one prayer today, it would be that we would develop an appetite for the abundant bread that you provide out of your great love and mercy. Give us a hunger for you. God, we think of all those astronauts who flew all those missions and practiced all that time just so that when the real thing came along, they had already been there. They were ready because they had been tested and prepared. And even though we don't always know what or why we're facing your tests, we know that you do and that you invite us to bring what we have to your feet and then stand back and watch the amazing things that you are able to do. Thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you that you love us so much and that you continue to extend your mercy to us. We love you. And Father, we offer you our continued worship now, O Lord. And the church said, amen. As we prepare to go this morning, receive this word. May our Lord Jesus Christ be with you to defend you, within you to keep you, before you to lead you, beside you to guard you, and above you to bless you as you go now in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen, amen. Church, have a wonderful week. I look forward to seeing you again.